0: And welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about things that have made the scriptures become more real to us because we believe that there's a lot of power in the scriptures, and the more real they are, the more we can draw it out and apply it to our lives. And we need that power. I'm your host, Carrie Milstein, and I'm so excited about my guest today. Uh, this is Heather B. Moore, who I- I've known just casually for a long time. I, I knew her father better, Kent Brown, um, but. Uh, Heather is a really well-known, maybe like the best well-known, well, I don't know who who can say best, but one of the best well-known LDS uh, fiction authors and uh, historical fiction and things like that. She writes uh, some, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've got some LDS kind of romance stuff, but also some historical scriptural stuff. I know I was recently at a book signing uh, and she was by far the biggest name there and who people were, I mean, they, they, they were... I don't think anyone really cared to see me, but there were some other romance uh, authors that people were excited about, but, but Heather's the no command. I think you have like more than 30 books. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So thanks so much for having me. Um, I was excited when I talked to you, you told me about this program. Um, yeah. I've been writing for covenant for just over 20 years. So obviously it adds up when you're doing a book a year and sometimes more than one. I also, and I mostly write for covenant. I mostly write historical fiction, scripture fiction, yeah. and it's under HB Moore. And then I also do some inspirational nonfiction, and like you mentioned, I've done some women's fiction and sweet romance as well. And then I write for Shadow Mountain, which is an imprint of Desert Book, and I write historical fiction, not necessarily uh, religious based. But I but so far all the characters or the books I've written have um, religious characters in them. So uh, just a happenstance.
0: <laughs> uh, well, yeah, well, we probably not quite happenstance, but uh, but it's. Uh... Yeah, I mean, just a great uh, writer, and uh, I mean, really anyone who can say I've been writing for 20 years, that's impressive, and to have uh, 30 or more uh, publications is impressive, Uh, but for someone like me, who geeks out on uh, the scriptures becoming real, someone who writes historical fiction, scripture-based stories, uh, that's like the ideal world, because you have to stop and think, okay, what would this have looked like? Where would they have been? And you've had a lot of experience in in the Holy Land. And so uh, th- that helps you with that. But but you really have to think through what are the real life nuts and bolts of these stories. And so I- I'm just excited that you can uh, help us with that uh, and, and the, the thing. So maybe tell us a little bit about your process and, and uh, what. Uh, made you choose different stories we, you can you can highlight you know some of the scriptural stories that maybe uh, you've especially liked and then we'll jump in i know we're going to talk particularly about esther but i'd love to hear about some of the other stories and how you do it and that kind of thing
1: so the first series i that i have under my publishing belt um most most fiction authors especially there's a lot of trial and error you you write a mystery you write different genres i word, wrote a world war ii novel all these things, I guess, turned out to be practice novels because they never got published. <laughs> and so I was specifically, I was in a critique group, and several of the authors in my group, they were publishing with local publishers in Utah. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to look at, look at the, the Utah market. Not, Of course, Utah market gives it a disservice. So maybe I should say LDS market and see maybe what what is a published and what is, is um, a niche I can fill. So I had actually was at a Sunday dinner at my parents' house. And and like you mentioned, my dad is as Camp Brown. And and I said, well, well, what do you think if I wrote a series on Nephi, historical novel or series on Nephi and his family? And my older sister said, well, what do you know about the Book of Mormon? And so I was (laughs) like, so we all laugh. And I'm like, well, what do I know? Well, not, I mean, just as much as a layman going to Sunday school once a week knew um, and from reading it but so I I thought about that and so I came up with that idea I know I'm going to ask my dad to co-write with me because he knows he's a scriptor scriptorian and yeah. and you know they'll they'll take away all that research I have to do I can just write the fun the fun stuff and so I brought it up to him and he he knew his answer immediately which was no he was not going to write fiction on the book mormon and he is much more interested in in doing things like commentaries and doctrinal works. So I said, well, I guess I have this handy dandy research assistant. Well, if you know my dad, which you do, um, he has a lot of knowledge and he has thousands of books that he's read, but he doesn't give away his knowledge for free. So I would email him. This is back before I think either of us had cell phones. I would email him or sometimes call him and say, hey, I have this question about Nephi or Lehi or, or someone in the family or, or a situation or a location. And, and so his answer would be, um, well, this is published Camille Frank Olson published an article in the Journal Book of Mormon Studies on Soraya. So she was probably it.
0: editing at the time since right. he was the editor of that journal, but yeah. Yeah.
1: So he would tell me, go do your research, but he was, he was really great at giving me the direction. Um, I remember when I wanted to do a map for for that series, actually I did a map for, I mean, not me personally, but I hired a map designer. And I said, well, there's all these theories of where uh, Nephi landed in the promised land. And what do you think? And so he would give me different scholarly articles to read and direct me to them. And um, so he just kind of said, you know, you need need to make those hard decisions. I have an opinion, but it's not locked in stone. He's also was very open-minded to um when I came up with the suggestions he would say oh that might work or that's interesting instead of giving me a hard no or a hard yes um and so anyway so I did book a Mormon fiction for a while and I would I ended up doing some firesides and and book clubs and one of the things that that I was told over and over is we love how you make the women characters you give them names you obviously know Sariah's name, but you give these other women names, Nephi's wife and, and Ishmael's wife and his daughters. And so I thought, well, what if I write a nonfiction book on women of the Book of Mormon? And so that kind of started my path of doing some inspirational nonfiction and also writing, continue the historical fiction. And I had several novels out in the in the uh, Book of Mormon. And I, and I wrote a novel on Ibn- Abinadi, one on Alma and Alma the Younger and Ammon. You see where I'm going with that. Yeah. yeah. And there's so many A names. I mean, I could keep them straight because I'm devoting several months of my life doing all this research. But I thought my readers are just, they're not going to know the difference. You know, who am I going to write next? Like Aaron, that's another A name. So I thought, well, what if I write, uh, if I switch to biblical? And I really love doing that. And my Book of Mormon novels, um, they're, they're, they're basically based around the Book of Mormon Prophets, and then I do bring in women into the stories, but with my biblical novels, I've had women as a central character in most of them, and I've loved doing that because I feel like I'm kind of, I'm taking scholars like um, like you and my dad and, and many others that have spent their life truly uh, researching and writing and teaching this, but then what? I, I feel like um it's it's almost like we don't have um well we graduate from college and then are we going to continue to be a student of the scriptures and hopefully we are but if i can like glean some of these specific articles like an article on on the iron ore that nephi dug up in um and and then like who like who else is going to read that but but just kind of i feel like kind of an elite 10 percent are reading these journals and i can kind of not i'm not toning anything down i'm just adding it into this fictional side and i'm adding in that my chapter notes you know all this research i did so that people can have all these sources to go to and i kind of meet people in the middle um,
0: yeah you, you take the stuff that we write that uh, is interesting to weird people but you make it accessible <laughs> to everybody
1: Okay. So you went there so I could say scripture nerds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, (laughs) totally, totally appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. We geek out on this stuff. There's no, no doubt. Yeah. So that's fantastic. So uh, let's jump in and talk about Esther in particular, maybe why you were interested in Esther and then uh, some things you've learned from Esther.
1: So I have a historical novel. It's called Esther, the queen. It's been out for several years. I had actually written a a book on adam and eve a novel on adam and eve and at the time uh, my publisher turned it down for various reasons and but they said we will hold your publishing spot if y-. so adam and eve was my first biblical novel because i just thought well i'm going to start at the beginning mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just really cheesy but so then they said we will hold your publishing spot but you will need to turn in this book within about i think it was less than three months like two and a half months oh which is really, really fast, especially since it was the middle of summer. And I usually, my kids were younger and I try not to write during the summer. or have deadlines. Um, So I'm not the grouchy mom, (laughs) the impatient mom. And so I remember talking to my girls and say, specifically my daughter, Dana. And I said, okay, if, if you could pick a woman in the scriptures, a scripture heroine. And I think she was like 11 or something. She was pretty young who would you choose? And she said, Esther, Esther, the queen. And so I thought, okay, well, well, sure. But so I thought, well, how much research is this going to take? Cause I only have really a couple months to write this book. And if it's just a lot of research, like there's only three, and obviously I knew there's a book, a book of Esther. So I read through all the chapters and I thought, wow, the whole story is literally laid out. I mean, I'm basically yeah. just rewriting the story you know, I'm fleshing out the characters. I don't even know if I really need extra characters in there because you have a whole yeah uh, plethora of characters. And so, um, so that's what I did. I remember writing at soccer practices. I had my handy dandy laptop with me um, and I told my dad and a couple other readers, I think my mom, um, she's very astute with grammar and storytelling. And um, I said, I'm, I'm writing this book but I have to send you 50 pages at a time, almost as I'm writing it. And usually that's not the process I use. And so a lot of prayer was involved. And I just felt like this book needs to be um, great when I turn it in. I don't want to turn in second class product because I wrote it faster than I normally like to. And I also felt like I involved, I talked to my kids about it. I asked them what they liked about the story. So was involving my kids. So they knew when mom was writing, it wasn't just, you know, something in the clouds that they never saw or got to participate in. And so, but I ended up just really loving the story of Esther and I love that she, um, there's so many parts to it. Um, so I think one of the things that really stuck out to me first is uh, is Esther is the second queen. So the king, um, I will, I say Ahasuerus, is there a better way to say
0: uh, well, I, I don't, I'm not a Farsi expert, so I've just always said uh, Ahasuerus, but I okay, Ahasuerus, I don't yeah. do uh, a Farsi. And uh, I, there were some people who in my department did, and I asked them okay. uh, about some names, but I never got to this name and I wish I had.
1: So one of the things I had really had to dig down is, is what did, what did Queen Vashti or Vashti, how do you say, okay, that's, it's, I, I say
0: Vashti, but I really okay. don't know. So, I, I,
1: I, I say Vashti yeah. too. So I didn't want to be grating on your ears. Uh,
0: that's all good. About
1: this. Um, So, so his wife Vashti is, is invited to come to the banquet and to show herself. And um, so I thought, well, what does that mean? Like what? And so obviously, you know, I talked to my dad about it or I read about it. And um, I discovered that to show herself meant to probably show her face and in their culture, the women kept their faces and hair covered, especially in public. And so this would have been against her core beliefs. And and I don't know why the king would ask her to do that. If maybe he was um, bragging how beautiful she was, or he was pressured by his advisors, or the yeah. visiting,
0: or showing some kind of dominance, or who yeah, knows some kind I, of
1: dominance. Yeah. Like like I you know I'm the king kind of a thing. Um, so she refuses, and so of course this starts this this kind of chaotic discussion of of well if your wife is not going to obey you who is a king then how will any of the women in our country of persia obey their men so then um you no know, i would love i would love just to see this story fold out and yeah. or unfold before us and and see why would the king let his advisor sway him but we but we see this throughout all of history where the king is given bad advice or a president of the country or whatever and then they go with that advice and sometimes it turns out good and sometimes it doesn't so she obviously we know from the whole story of esther that this was kind of a divine intervention if you want to call it that because once he chooses esther for the next queen um she becomes that key component to saving the Jews that, that had all been refugees in their country for decades. Yeah. So when, oh, and the other thing too is, um, is Mordecai, he is an interesting guy. So Esther is an orphan. She's living with um, Mordecai, who's her relative and Mordecai um, sees this as an opportunity. And I think, well, if I was an aunt and uncle of a young, beautiful Jewish woman, would I send her into a harem and be, you, know, purified and trained and educated so that she could possibly be, become queen someday. I'm like, no, because I don't know. I feel like you know, I want to keep my, my daughter or um, my adopted niece in my family group because she does have to keep her religion a secret. And this, and as a parent, we all know that that's the one thing that we want to share with our children is our faith. And so not only does she have to keep it a secret from her husband, who is a king, who has the power to have her executed if she displeases him or divorce her like he did his first wife, um, that she cannot share her, her truth, faith, her true religion with her children because they'll grow up under um, the king's religion. And so you can, you can kind of see that, that she might live in a beautiful palace, as it's described in the book of Esther, and she, um, might have a lot of favors. And it says in Esther two, that she obtained grace and favor in the King's eyes. And so, you know, she definitely was, um, a priority in his life, but she also had to live in this harsh reality. And, and you, I thought you kind that, of
0: almost, Oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, I just thought that I just relate to that where, um, I think many of us well. can relate to that where there's times we can't, um, Shar religion or our faith
0: you know yeah so yeah yeah and you, you kind of almost have to assume and i you know you have to be careful assuming but that, that mordecai must have been inspired in some way mm-hmm. because uh, i mean uh, we're going to use the phrase jewish which doesn't really work before this time period but this is when this is the appropriate time period when they've they've been uh, taken away from jerusalem and they're trying to maintain their religious identity in other countries this is exactly when it becomes important for them to really uh, it become what we would call Jewish to, to, to have this, this is what we do and we're different than all of you and we, uh, they're, they're careful about marrying and so on. So to marry uh, at this time period, for her to marry someone in her same faith is really important. So you're right, for him to put her in this situation where uh, she can't do almost any of the things that are what are so important to them uh, is unusual. It's not what you would expect of someone who clearly is uh, a, a pretty fervent Jew in in Mordecai's case, uh, th- there's th- there has to be something that's inspired I just assume that, but who knows? Yeah, I right? agree.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree that Mordecai was was inspired, and maybe he didn't know why he was inspired yet. Yeah, probably not. Um, but then if but then when you dig into writing someone a villain like like Haman, mm-hmm. and um and then you find out that he just really despises Mordecai and Mordecai you know a little bit in the future and Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman and give Haman the respect uh, he thinks he deserves um I don't know I I think that may not have been the first incident between the two yeah um that there's some history there there might be additional history with with Haman just ver- versus having the Jewish people in his country because maybe he had to give up some of his land um you know and and anytime you have, A situation where you have a foreign group of people come into your community and then now you're asked to share with them and help provide for them that could just produce some resentment that could carry on for decades and decades yeah so this Um, has been building up in Haman, i think for a long time
0: it it seems quite likely but i think this is also where we see that mordecai is is at least in Mm -hmm. some aspects very fervent because his life's going to be easier if he doesn't make an issue of this yeah. Um, but he feels like as a as a practicing Jew worshiping Jehovah that he cannot bow down to someone or something else, and he's willing to cause himself trouble over that. So it, it tells you a little something about Haman right there.
1: Yeah. And I and I love how you have these two very very strong, very st- stubborn man in their own ways, and but yet one is following the light and one is following the darkness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One is is certainly focusing on himself and his own aggrandizement whereas Haman seems to be focusing on am I doing what God wants and am I taking care of my people
1: right yeah and it actually reminds me like the whole story of Esther also reminds me of Abish from the Book of Mormon where she also lives lives in um, a foreign land to her well not foreign she's in the the land of Ishmael but she is not able to share her religion that she's Mm -hmm. been her, her faith that she's been taught by her father, because um, she would probably be ostracized if she did, or even commanded to worship the God that the, the Lamanites, Lamanites, are, Lamanites are. And then it was to Abish's peril, possible peril, that she finally admitted that Nephite, um, that the Nephite God was the true God, and that Ammon had not killed King Lamoni and his wife, um, so it kind of was similar, like knowing yeah. that story and then reading Esther's story. And I think it's just interesting. I would just love to to know what all of their traditions were because I feel like there, there's so many things that we read in the book of Esther that you think, that is just so weird or why would they do that? I don't understand that. And I feel like there's a lot of tradition and culture that is missing from the story. For instance, where Esther is not allowed to pr- approach the king unless she's invited. And I thought that is, in my mind, I think, why i mean she is his wife and why can't she just talk to him at night when he's you know comes home from his meeting so i don't know if you have insight into that or not
0: No, not much although it, it would seem likely that they are not sharing the same bed yeah. Uh, yeah which is not uncommon among royalty and so on especially um if you you may end up with more than one wife and so on but uh Uh, I'll just maybe use this as a a plea to people to, uh, we need someone who becomes a Persian scholar. This is uh, in biblical studies in general, and certainly among the LDS scholarly community. The Persian period is a really important period for the Bible, uh, for ancient history in general, and yet uh, it is one of the most overlooked disciplines, and we really don't have anyone that I'm aware of in the church that really is an expert on that Persian period, and yet it's crucial, we need someone who will mm-hmm. uh, that, that help us answer these questions, because we all have these questions, and we, we need some experts that can answer them.
1: Well, and I, and I also did a lot of research on harems, because in my mind, just thinking, oh, a harem is where, you know, all these concubines, and, but even if they were concubines, they weren't necessarily women that had relations with the king, they, they were servants in the palace, but they did live in And I think it was more for their protection than anything. There are women that were considered purified and pure women, and they um, took care of all kinds of things in the palace. And um, so that was kind of interesting to, that kind of changed my mind of how how the king Ahasuerus or (laughs) that he ran his kingdom, he wasn't quite the, he wasn't quite like King Solomon or King David, so...
0: Yeah, yeah. And it, and it is, uh, I, I think there is something to when, when you're a king with multiple wives that uh, you do control the access of who comes to you when, uh, partially just because it can become a problem, if, if not uh, awkwardness or whatever else, but uh, it's also uh, the idea you are of a different class than even your, your wives. I mean, the king held a, was thought of as, as having just a different nature, a different station. Than those around him, and so everyone around him, including uh, his most beloved wife or whatever else, uh, even family members, were going to have to treat him differently. And so they'd have all sorts of things set up um, to make sure that you you maintain that division between your status and nature and his status and nature.
1: Right. Yeah. And then an interesting thing. That is very interesting to me is that Haman has enough influence on the king to get him to agree to send out an extermination order for the Jewish people and. um, Maybe there has been just a lot of issues going on between the Persians and the Jewish people and so, for whatever reason, the king thinks this is a good idea. uh, politically, Um, but I also feel like that the king didn't know the whole picture, because later when he discovers the whole picture. He does turn against Haman.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It seems like he was given limited information. Yeah. And I have to say, I have a hard time now picturing this story without something, how having veggie tales creep into my understanding of it. But uh, so, so I have to always stop and say, and and that's the, the, the great thing. It helps it come to life, but then I have to say, okay, no, wait, is that really in the scriptures or not? So, uh, and that's actually what I love about all scriptural fiction, whether it be uh, movies or, or uh, cartoon characters, or books like yours, um, that it forces us to both stop and think about the details of their lives, and it also forces us to say, okay, let's go back into the scriptures and know what do we know, and what are we having to assume, like you and I've just been talking about what we have to assume, but the more it forces us into the scriptures, the happier I am.
1: Yeah, I, I agree, and that's what I love about, and I'll read other authors that write scripture fiction, and I love to just see what they're their take is or what they've learned or what they've kind of imagined because it definitely does bring it makes them feel like even if we don't know like some of these questions we brought out we don't know the exact answers it makes us think about them
0: yeah that's exactly right to learn
1: more um the other thing that i thought really stuck out to me about esther is that uh, she well we know that so mordecai which is kind of happens throughout um the scriptures is he rent his clothes as a signal that he is in mourning and there's a big changes happened and so esther uh discovers this and she finds out what has what is going on and instead of just retreating to herself and feeling oh this is terrible but i'm in this elevated you know i'm in, i live in this bubble in this palace this castle and that doesn't affect me anymore i'm married I'm, you know i'm the queen yeah. of the land is she she has mordecai go and ask for her people to fast for her
0: Yeah. This is the thing that impresses me the most. You know, we can ask all sorts of questions about, okay, well, Esther, if he couldn't tell she was Jewish, then she's obviously not practicing. And is that because she shared the same inspiration as Mordecai or what, you know, what is motivating her to hide uh, her religion to the point where clearly she's not able to fully practice it. Um, But when, when the chips are down, when mm-hmm. this is uh, uh dangerous for her, uh, her devotion shows through. Uh, she is willing to put her life on the line in order to help her people. And uh, how can you not admire someone who comes through in that way?
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, she just has kept her faith this whole time, and so she knows, you know that that she that she needs not only the, the help of the Lord, but also the prayers of her people.
0: Yeah. And and it's interesting because this is a time where in, um, and I should have brought this up earlier when you talked about Mordecai's inspiration for her to be married, but this is a time where back in, in Jerusalem, uh, they're really frowning on intermarriages, hmm. right? It's not, uh, not thought of as a positive at all. Ezra is going to make people leave their foreign wives uh, which I, uh, uh, so I'm not a big fan of that particular <laughs> policy. But anyway, uh, he, uh, it, it's, this is going against what a number of her people would have felt. Uh, and, and again, I just have to feel like Mordecai and Esther really had some guts. I'm going to assume they were both inspired. And it's not easy to go against uh, some of your cultural norms, because you feel inspired to do it. And, and, and that's, I mean, that can be a a double edged sword. We have to be careful. And, you know, if someone suddenly feels inspired that they should be drinking coffee all the time, I think that that's that's not a good place to go. Um, That's that's a different thing. But uh, I have to admire the way that these two uh, stuck uh, to what they felt led to do. And then when the chips were down, they both uh, really stuck to what they felt they needed to do, uh, even at the peril of their own lives. And uh, that's that's fantastic.
1: And and I think it's also a testament to the king of how he would, uh, there. I mean, I don't, I just think, okay, so they've been married, we don't know how long, but she confesses that these are her people. And I think there's obviously some missing scripture there of, of what his response was. I'm sure he had questions, yeah. um, but in the scripture, we just see that he immediately is supportive of her and wants to know, you know how every how the edict came about you know the whole process and so she tells him about Haman and the and the king's next actions where Haman's the one that ends up getting sent to the scaffold that he built for Mordecai I mean it just shows the relationship between her and the king and it is a testimony of how she's been living her life this whole time even if the king didn't know her specific yeah, religion that she has been living it in such a way that the king knows he can trust her.
0: Yeah, she's clearly a light that uh, he is, and others are drawn to. Uh, there, there's no doubt. There's this something about her, right? This this kind of light and this nature that that draws people. And I'm kind of curious as an author because, uh, like you said, you know, you came in, you said, "Oh, the, the plot's all laid out to me." I, I think the Book of Esther is like one of the best plot twists and and so on <laughs> ever. Right, where you've got this story where um, uh, Mordecai, Haman hates Mordecai, but then the king suddenly remembers Mordecai, and he gets Haman to come up with the plan of how to honor Mordecai when when Haman thinks it's yeah. for him, and and then uh, uh, at Haman's moment where he thinks he's going to be, he's like being honored more than anything else because he's at this dinner. It's really the dinner of his undoing. Like the plot twists in this story are fantastic. I, I'd just love to know your take on this. It's uh, like, as an author, it's
1: like they had the best scriptwriter back then. It's yeah. it's the whole concept of if you it's so amazing you can't make this up yeah truth truth is stranger than fiction um what I mentioned before is when I just read through all the chapters in Esther I'm like I don't I mean I don't have to come up with conflict you know the villain and there's just so many plot twists in there and and there's there's good revenge in there as well um the bad guy really gets it but I also wanted to dig a little bit I didn't want to make a Haman um as like just the stereotypical villain, you know, yeah. the cardboard a flat figure. character
0: in, in the version yeah. we have.
1: So I gave him a little bit of backstory where, and I thought, well, if he's if he's evil on this way, he's probably doing a few other naughty deeds on the side as well. And so I gave him, uh, I had him fall in love with a woman who is Jewish, who um, while well, he's married and she rejects him because mm. he won't leave his wife. So then, so that he now just, he's been hurt. His heart has been broken. He's angry. He's vengeful, and then that's he just it just grows and grows as you know. Hatred just don't yeah. go through forgiveness. It can just grow. It can really take over, and it hurts the person that's, you know, hurts you more than anyone else. And so that's kind of part of what spearheaded. Um, and then when Morde- Mordecai doesn't bow to him, it's just insult upon insult.
0: Yeah, and that's that adds to the backstory of the problems with him and Mordecai. Then
1: yeah. So that's fictionally, fantastic. I can do something like that. Um, but it, it still, it still is with careful analysis and thought of like, well, I need to find something that. I mean, he 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 wasn't born this way, so yeah. I need to find something that kind of led him down that path.
0: Wow. that's good stuff. Uh, 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 just such great stories. Uh, to your point of uh, the the truth is stranger than fiction, or you know, you can't make this. So- you know, when you think about the Old Testament, you think about the stories of Abraham in Egypt, or Jacob and his brother, or Joseph in Egypt, or Moses, or the the like intricate story of Saul and David and Jonathan uh, or or David and Bessie. I mean, this is the best drama in the world. It's the Old Testament's just great reading in these ways. It's also sad reading, but it's, it's amazing drama, which, which speaks to kind of the theme of the show that uh, these are real people Mm -hmm. with real lives that are complex and difficult and it turns out we're real people with real lives that are complex and difficult. And uh, that's why there's so much power in the scriptures, because it's not made up stuff. So Haman may be a little bit of a flat character, but but you know, actually, he, he's not. He's complex mm-hmm. uh, in some way because he's a real person and everyone else in here is. And and uh, that's what I just love is that uh, we can then apply, hopefully, as we look at, at the difficulties that we maybe hadn't thought of that Esther was going through and the difficulties that Mordecai was going through. We can see some element of that in our lives. Like you mentioned earlier, we've all had times where we're like, okay, I would really love to jump out and share my religious point of view, but in this setting, this is really not, not okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, um, you know, I taught at a state school for a while uh, and I was teaching a class on uh, the, the uh, Assyrian, and uh, Babylonian empires, and uh, you get to parts where they interact with Israel, and my students had lots of religious questions, and I couldn't answer them. It was illegal, right, Uh, at this state school, and (laughs) uh, uh, so there are times where you just can't do it, and and so it's nice to draw some inspiration from some characters who may be in similar situations.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree, and that's what I feel like you know, studying the scriptures and it can really, I mean, we can learn so much, we can grow from them. We can see their examples. We can see their, their achievements and their failures. And, and then we think, well, that stuff happens in my life too. And it just shows us that the entirety of the human race, you know, we're all on that same path of progression.
0: Uh, Fantastic. So is there anything else from Esther, something you've learned or that's uh, really affected you or anything else you'd like to share?
1: I, I think just what I brought up a little bit before is is just how how she kept her faith um even when she she had to just hide it. And I think that um, you know, I mean I live in Utah, so I'm not in a war war-torn area. Um, I could openly practice my religion. Like you said, I've lived in the Middle East where we had to be very careful what what questions we would answer. So I relate to it a little bit that way, or maybe we have a family member who um, isn't active. So you, when you're around them, you want to keep your relationship good, so yeah. you don't talk about your upcoming class you have to teach on Sunday, you know. So, so you have all these complicated relationships, and so I feel like someone like reading about someone like Esther and even Mordecai, is is how they just they listen to the Spirit. They didn't know the answers all the time. They listened to the spirit they did what they're asked to do and then they just waited so wow. and sometimes that's all we can do in our lives as well
0: that's that's good that's good and you know you've just made me think of something that's what i love about these conversations is you start thinking of things you hadn't mm-hmm. thought of before i'm just thinking about mordecai when you when you mentioned him just now and uh i mean part of what works part of what saves is it's esther but it's also that mordecai ended up being really good at his job the yeah. fact that he saved the king um, from a plot, and it uh, is what makes this work for both him and Esther, right? So th- yeah. they both have to have fulfilled their roles, but so he was doing the
1: right thing all along, which yeah. put him in that position down the road. Yeah,
0: yeah and there is something to about just, uh, even if so, he's not being, uh, I mean, he's being, I guess, as overtly religious as he needed to be as a Jew, but he's not, uh, you know, it, it, trying to proselyte the king or anything like that, um, but just doing what he does well, being a, a good guy who is, is good at what he does, doing his best, I guess we could yeah. say, in the end makes a difference he probably couldn't have anticipated it would have made. And that, that's got to be true for all of us. If we are just trying to be the right kind of person and, and do whatever it is we're asked to do, trying to do it well, um, that makes a difference even if uh, we're not overtly proselyting while we're doing it or anything along those lines. Uh, And that's that's a lesson I hadn't thought about until we were just talking, but I think there's a lesson to learn as well.
1: I agree. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been awesome.
0: Uh, Well, it's just good, good, clean fun. And I I hope that this has made uh, Esther a little more real for everyone and and just to help us stop and think about uh, as you read through the story to stop and think about some of the nuts and bolts and about what it would have meant in, in your life. I think you're particularly gifted at that. I, I think you have a, a, a wonderful gift for that. And I hope it's, uh, well, I'm sure it's helped uh, many of uh, this audience as you've led them through this a little bit. So thank you for that.
1: No problem. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Have a great day. And to our, our audience, uh, jump into Esther and enjoy and learn from this heroine and her Uh, adopted father, as it were, or uncle, uh, and uh, everyone else in the story. And uh, you may know someone who you think, you know what, they could be helped by hearing this and, and pass it along to them. So thank you. Have a great day.